You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 125 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Bruce Damer. Bruce is a multidisciplinary scientist, designer and author. He collaborates with colleagues developing and testing a new model for the origin of life on Earth and in the design of spacecraft architectures to provide a viable path for expansion of human civilization beyond the Earth. He began his career in the 1980s, developing some of the earliest user interfaces for personal computers. Led a community in the 90s, bringing the first multi-user virtual worlds to the internet, and since 2000 supported NASA and the space industry on numerous simulations and spacecraft designs. Dr. Bruce Damer has spent 25 years chronicling the history of computing in his DigiBarn Computer Museum and curates archives of counterculture figures such as Dr. Timothy Leary, Terence McKenna and others. He currently serves as a principal scientist at Digital Space, associate researcher in the Department of Biomolecular Engineering at UC Santa Cruz, Associate of the NASA Astrobiology Center and much more. Check out Damer.com for more information. And this episode will be the first time I will have a two-part episode because my talk with Bruce was quite lengthy but highly interesting. And I didn't want to edit it down. So rather than cut things out, I decided to release this in two parts. And in this episode, you are going to listen to the first part and next Sunday, in episode 126, you will be able to hear the second part. And if you're listening to this podcast as it is released, you will have to wait a week to hear the next part. However, if you listen to this sometime in the future, the second part is already there, next in line in the playlist. Either way, I highly suggest you listen to both parts in the right order. Uh, as it will make more sense and uh, there is a lot of interesting topics that we cover. So if you are interested in the origins of life and consciousness, the truth behind the term survival of the fittest and how you walk the liminal ridge, then sit back and enjoy Dr. Bruce Damer. So thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So can you inform the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? I'm a uh, sort of a polymath. I, I work in several fields. Uh, that's what polymath tends to mean. It's not that I'm a mathematics person. Uh, I work in uh, high tech, uh, specifically the last 15 years on spacecraft design and mission simulation uh, for <clears throat> excuse me, for NASA and, and others. Uh, I also work on the other project, which is very dear to my heart, which is uh, new uh, models for the origin of life on Earth, how, how life began uh, from basic chemicals. And that actually leads into philosophy, because if you sort of can put that together, you can come up with new, new ways of looking at even consciousness. So that's been a uh, <clears throat> that's been a wonderful field to mine. 
uh, the origin of the chemical origin of life teaches us something about who we are, actually. And, and what are those chemicals? Well, in the beginning, uh, if, if, you're, if your listeners are interested, uh, the chemicals we're made up of are primarily uh, li- things called lipids. Think, think soap bubbles. Uh, they're kind of long, stringy molecules that like to nestle together, and they create our cell walls. And they're so, so, I think of the lipid or the amphiphilic molecule as being the weirdest molecule in the cosmos because they'll nestle together without bonding and they wiggle, they flip around all the time and they create something called a membrane, which allows things to go across because membranes, if your cell membranes didn't allow anything in or out, you wouldn't be alive. Uh, So the lipid membrane is the sort of starting point for life. And then everything that goes across that membrane, things like amino acids and nucleic acids, uh, form the information and the tools used to make life work. So there's your three basic classes. And of course, lots of water. Most people know that, you know, a life comes from DNA. So, you know, the mainstream rudimentary knowledge. So where does the DNA figure into this you're talking about? Well, that's been one of the conundrums of origin of life work, uh, which is that what came first? So there's there's been schools of thought that said, well, you have to get some kind of metabolism going to make products, sort of metabolism first. There's a lipid world hypothesis uh, all about, well, you need containers. And then there's a group that talks about the RNA world. And RNA is a, a close cousin to DNA. It's the thing that, that transfers the the data, if you will, the library, the search engine result from DNA over and makes proteins, which are the tools that run your cells. So they're thinking there's maybe an RNA world, that RNA could do the function of storing memory, storing information, but also doing jobs. Um, so there's the RNA world, uh, but our our model actually incorporates all of those at once. It's also very very difficult to, I mean, to study something, how something came to be, because before that there was nothing. So that bridge between nothing and something, like the Big Bang, for instance. Yeah, and and as we're getting closer to this, we actually can do these experiments in the lab and. Last year, uh, I actually put a slide tray into a, a volcanic fumarole vent uh, up at Mount Lassen National Park, uh, where steam is coming out. All kinds of things are coming out of these vents, and we're able to get RNA to be made in those conditions, because it turns out that nature, nature had only one way to make the molecules of life back in the day before biology, and that's by drying things out. So think of like a bathtub. If you dry it down, you get a a bathtub ring forming of of what was in the bathtub. And it turns out that that ring is layers, hundreds of layers of these lipid molecules, and they press together the building blocks of RNA and of even DNA and of, of, of peptides, which are short proteins. And we discovered this about 10 years ago at the lab at UC Santa Cruz. Dave Deemer uh, discovered that, that this is a way that nature can make all these things. So 
from some from nothing coming something and it comes down to Darwin Charles Darwin's idea in the 19th century that life started in a warm little pond somewhere uh, he he was actually right on the money because it's not just a warm little pond it's a pond that dries down and refills all the time and and you can find so such ponds at hot springs so cre increasingly we're going out to hot springs to try to do the chemistry there and Last summer I visited uh, Western Australia, the, the, where the oldest hot spring known uh, in, on the earth is found. It's 3.5 billion year old rock outcrop that's the remnants of a hot spring from just a, probably a few hundred million years after the origin of life. And we find signs of life in this hot spring in the rock. And it's like, okay, we're as close as we'll ever get. But touching these, these textured rocks is as close as we'll ever get to going back to that origin moment. But uh, it, was, it was almost like a holy, it's like going to uh, Mecca or something for somebody like me to go and, and, and use my rock hammer to break open these rocks and see these uh, signs of life from all that time ago. So Earth is basically just a, a moldy rock in space. Yeah, it's a, you know, it, it exactly right. Uh, that's a good way to describe it. I mean, it's got this fuzz on the surface, like a moldy bit of cheese, uh, and it has uh, lots of life in the rocks, uh, but it's moist and it gets hot and cold, and it's just like it's being in the fridge and it's being taken out of the fridge. Whereas if you go to Mars, which you find, I, I'm part of a, a group uh, working on the next landing site for the next Mars rover in 2020, and Mars is dried out. Uh, if you compare it to the moldy Earth, Mars is like the most dry crust of bread uh, that has no water in it. You know, it may be deeply buried, but if life started on Mars, it had to go underground uh, to survive, because Mars lost most of its atmosphere too, so it's it's bathed in ultraviolet radiation. So if you empty a bathtub, it you, it forms this like uh, thing around the side, and if you leave it like for years, it it might start growing some some stuff. But you know, w is it only time that makes that stuff go from that to like building jumbo jets? Is it only time, or is there something else that creates this more advanced? creature well you know i think that what you can do is in as 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 in any human intellectual enterprise you can start with a very reductionist uh, materialist view of the mechanics of things uh so for example this fluctuating pool that leads to the first organisms that then have to spend three billion years to clean the earth up uh to clean it of dissolved iron to put uh, oxygen in the atmosphere, and then suddenly we can have complex multicellular life. And all through this time as asteroid impacts and periods when the whole Earth was frozen over, you know, and where things got stagnant, you know, continents are moving around. And you think of the improbability of Earth reaching a point where it can support, say, plants on land or animals of any kind. I mean, it's extremely rare, I think, for a world uh, to get to this point. And then you go through this whole process of complex animals that develop nervous systems and 
and then intelligence, self-awareness, self-knowingness, and then language, and then tools like, like science and like spiritual tools that then can look back at who we are, where we came from, what the meaning of it all it is. And that in itself is extremely rare, I think, in the cosmos. Uh, so <clears throat> we are actually extraordinary miracles by any definition. This, this ordinary humans, the two of us on this, on this Skype podcast caller, is, is an unbelievably rare event in the cosmos. So then you can come in a little bit past your reductionism and materialism and really uh, go into the, the wonderment of the fact that we're talking about this right now. It, for us, it's just an ordinary day and we're on an ordinary uh, Skype call. But for the cosmos, this is an extremely special occurrence. <clears throat> some scientists, they, they think that consciousness is in the body and some think that it's something outside the body. You know, nobody really knows. But if we uh, look at it, that it, it is in fact in the body, you know, it sounds so... Uh, you know the coincidence or the chance that such a thing would evolve from those small microbes or whatever you call it it's, it's almost too much i mean it would it sounds almost more logical that some god just put it in us <laughs> sounds easier yeah it's an easier way out but what what's amazing for me uh is now that science may be approaching the point where we can see the mechanism for life coming into being. And, and this, is, this is a very big moment. Also, it's a big spiritual moment. Uh, the model's been published. It's testable. You can actually, uh, we have in our lab uh, this rotating disc with 24 vials, and they go under drying stations and wetting stations, and we can actually grow RNA in there, uh, in the lab. So it's step one of many steps. But... If the model is plausible, the model actually teaches us so much. And I can give you a couple of examples if you're interested. So I, I, I was invited to speak at a conference called Toward a Science of Consciousness. And it's coming up in June of 2017 of this year uh, in San Diego. Uh, it's run by some uh, fellow named Stuart Hameroff, who you probably know. Uh, Hameroff works with Roger Penrose. So, so this conference is, is com combines two communities, the materialist community of this, as you pointed out earlier, of scientists and sort of hardcore researchers that believe that consciousness is just a phenomenon of the body, but it's also people like Deepak Chopra at the meeting. Uh, there's mystics and spiritualists, we call them, uh, who believe that consciousness is sort of part of a larger system or maybe is embodied in everything somehow. So I was invited to do a presentation and I looked deeply for sort of visionary wisdom about what can I what can I do? What could I offer this community? And what I came up with was if there's a way that I can show the reductionists, the materialists, how uh, they can actually work together with the spiritualists, with the experientialists. And I came up with a way to do that. And actually, I'm literally right now putting together the pieces of this talk. 
because initially you have to win over the materialists. You, you, you have to start with them, because if they're skeptical, if you're doing what, what some people call woo-woo things, you just lose them right away. And I've, I've learned this working 15 years with NASA, that they have this meter inside where it says flake on the meter. And if the, if the, if the, the arrow goes into the flaky area, from that point you're seen as a flaky person who's not serious. So you, you can't afford to do that. So I'm going to present them this chemical and thermodynamic model for the origin of life. And then I, what I hope to show them is it creates something called a field. And the field is a network. So life in this model that we're now proposing didn't start as competing cells. Because for cells to be competing in a Darwinian pure uh, kind of Darwinian way, they have to be pretty sophisticated. So the earliest forms of life were not competitive. They were networks. They were a communal unit, if you will. And this was this was proposed by Carl Woese and George Fox in the 70s. They created the idea of something called a progenote, which is a thing that's on the way to life, but it's not fully alive. It's the boot up. It's the boot sector you know, of the app starting up. And we think we found it. In fact, George Fox told us last year that he thinks we found the progenote or the mechanism of the progenote. So if you study early, the earliest thing coming into life, it's a cooperative community of these very simple protocells that are exchanging stuff. So with that as a basis, uh, this it changes really everything because if if humans and down to animals, plants and everything are actually part of a cooperative community, which we really are, we can rethink a lot of things. And I'll pause there to see if that if that lands, Alex. Yeah, it's it's kind of like you have to say it's survival of the most fit to cooperate. Exactly. And in fact, the survival of the fittest metaphor was proposed to Darwin uh to replace his term natural selection. And what I'm proposing, I'm writing a book at the moment, I'm proposing to replace both terms. Because survival of the fittest is a very, you know, 19th century kind of competitive, uh, almost a sports metaphor. Uh, Darwinian natural selection uh, Im implied to this particular critic that there was something doing the selecting, that there was a god doing the selecting. So they weren't happy with with that term. So Darwin started using the term survival of the fittest. But I think it's incorrect. I think, as, as you pointed out, if you think of, of life, especially early life, um, even before what you'd call the, the, the first common ancestor, nothing could make it without products being built being made by other things in the community, because the community was the unit. And in truth, today, the community is still the unit. You know, we can't survive without plants. They can't survive without soil microbes. We can't survive without a, a climate system that delivers rain. We're still living in the microbial progenote sort of communal unit. We just, we're grazers. We're, we're this new invention called animals which graze on 
microbial mats, which are really the dominant story of life on Earth. We chew our way through hamburgers and salads and things like that, and they're all products of this giant microbial world under our feet. And we think we're independent because, you know, we see each other and walk along. But in fact, we're totally dependent on this underlying uh, thing. And when, when complex animals are gone, or animals and plants are gone, which might only be a few hundred million years, uh, the microbial world will continue to the, the heat death of the, of the earth, you know. So, so in a sense, what I'm, what I'm suggesting here is by understanding where we came from, like fundamentally, uh, maybe even proving it in the lab in the century, it will refactor how we think about our civilization and each other. And it would be good if what you're saying becomes mainstream knowledge for every day or for the normal person, because I think that uh, the term survival of the fittest has become, in a way, the 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 theme for any capitalist society. And natural selection has been used by societies or cultures that have performed genocide, and they think, you know, they're better than another race. I, I think it goes into society in the in the subconscious. So if, if if there's a mainstream knowledge that it's about the most fit to cooperate, maybe that will create society that's more like you know helping each other instead. Exactly. And here here's a metaphor that I I use that I, I go into these dream states now and then uh, to do thought experiments. And this is a, a fairly standard tradition, certainly in the arts, you know, and in great writing, but also in science. You know, Albert Einstein, when he was 16, he went into this, what he called, thought experiment, where he, be, he, be, he was running alongside a beam of light. And then he just sort of let himself go and let the thought experiment or the dream or the vision show him things. And that gave him special relativity, you know. Newton worked through dreams, so did Descartes, you know. So in my in my dream I asked the system or whatever I was speaking to, I, I presented the the current state of our origin of life model as cycling protocells going in and out of wet, dry, wet, dry, and then clumping together, saying, Here's the state of the art so far. I got a pat on my head and the the entity or whatever it was that was in the dream said, "Let me now show you how it really worked." And I I, I basically sort of lay back because you you do this in these states you're getting this delivered thing, and suddenly my my ring of protocells my flowing sea of protocells was rotated ninety degrees where I was now seeing them sliced through where they were just popping in and out of existence instead of flowing sideways. They were sort of coming into the field and disappearing. And then suddenly there was a mesh, a square mesh placed down upon these little bubbles that had their polymers in them. And I thought, oh no, they've been all squished by this mesh. No, there was one little bubble, one little protocell made its way up through a, a square in the mesh and started to reproduce and populate across the mesh and then suddenly there was another mesh that slammed down on that population and another one came up through that mesh and then 
the whole system was turned on its side again. I could see trillions of these meshes, and I could see things climbing through them. And then the voice in the dream said, what do you see? I said, well, I see a struggle, an upward struggle of some members that go up, and they then they give what they have to the next level, and then they are sacrificed themselves. And then they, they're no longer there, but the offspring or the far offspring move to the next level, and it's about striving. And then I got my shirt collar grabbed by this entity in the dream and said, you listen and you listen good. What you are seeing is the process I call evolution. This is what I use to make you. But in you have gotten your minds, your monkey minds, fixated on this term, survival of the fittest. And it is destroying uh, your civilization and it's destroying our world. Get over it. It's about sacrifice and giving to the community at the next level. So I sort of fell back at that point, and uh, that was the message given in the thought experiment. And uh, the human race uh, in the recent hundred years, where when there's been the most conflict in the world uh, compared to the past, actually, uh, has been the most unfit to cooperate. So, so it's basically like de-evolution, so it could be like we would go extinct if we could keep this up. You're absolutely right. And so messages like this that come straight out of, these are not woo messages. This is not some philosopher at a university campus writing a book. This is core discovery, perhaps, coming out of science. It'll be the kind of message where, I'll give you an example, Alex, of, of what this would look like. So in, in the future, in 10 years from now, if people take up our experimental protocol and they are able to grow progenotes in the lab, i.e. their dishes wet and dry constantly, and these, these protocells form, and the protocells get more stable, the, the way you will know that your experiment is working is you have a camera on the dish, and when it's drying down, you see this blob of stable protocells at the bottom of the dish. And that's the size of your stable population. This this is not a living system. This is what's called chemical evolution going on. It's been done for years. Well, somebody cycles their dish for a thousand times, and one say at, at cycle number 512, they'll notice, oh, there's only half the number of protocells that are down there. And we didn't change any conditions. And then at, at cycle number 628, suddenly the, they've surged back and there's more stable protocells there and it's a bigger population. Well, they pause their experiment, pipette a little bit of a solution out of that, put it through a nanopore sequencer, and they may find short little pieces of genetic information that have evolved. And what had happened was a, a crash, a, a selection pressure had hit the little, the little sludge, the little progenote, and it had stopped being able to, uh, maybe it ran out of building blocks or something, and then the population crashed, and then an innovation happened somewhere in the progenote that allowed it to grow again. So you find this little piece of genetic material that is at the root of an efficient way to use the building blocks, and you have, you, you're now showing uh, this, this little thing crawling toward 
a living uh, state, but it only has a few functions that work. It's like running DOS instead of running Windows. You know, it's just a few things work on your computer and not that many. So, so that, that seeing that, if people are able to do this and, and one day maybe the uh, progenote will turn black because one team decided to hit it with ultraviolet radiation. So it developed a pigment to protect the community and capture energy. So suddenly this thing goes black, it's responding to an environmental stress. And we could sit back, you know, put, put that video on the web and say, have we identified our ancestry? You know, are we watching the process of a system going from non-life to life? And if, if so, this is how it's doing it, through cooperation, through collaboration and the sharing of innovations. But is it just an algorithm at work? I mean, like you said, if you shine ultraviolet light, it turns black to protect itself. Is it a consciousness that does that, or is it just a reflex? I mean, like, how does it know to do that? You know, Is it an algorithm? What it is, and that's a very good question, it's more than an algorithm. It's something called combinatorial selection. So what's happening down in that gel is trillions and trillions of sets of molecules are competing for stuff. And some of them are getting synthesized in the next generation, making it, and some of them are not. So it's a huge roulette wheel. It's a huge, in a sense, version of, of a casino that's operating. And a few are getting through. So it's actually, in a sense, the algorithm. Because just as in culture, you know, whether uh, your podcast is listened to is because it's competing with thousands of other podcasts. And it, it has to have something that appeals to a certain audience to get enough listeners to then reference it for other people. And then you have an audience. And and it's it's, in a sense, the algorithm is... Do you have a better tool, a better piece of cultural meme, a, a better way to absorb food or a way to protect that that goes to the next generation? So you're absolutely right. It, that's the algorithm. And the algorithm even works in spiritual tools. It works everywhere. So humanity is just like a, a meme that's gone viral. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, because cu- cultural evolution works really pretty much pretty much the same way as as chemical evolution does but you i mean you are like a proper scientist but you also have this spiritual side and so do you have to keep that a secret when you're at nasa or or how do you like connect it to in your daily life i i kind of i have a practice and thank you for asking the question i have a practice where i call it walking the liminal ridge and the word liminal, if you look it up, it's L-I-M-I-N-A-L, liminal. Uh, it means holding a position between two things. And uh, so that's one of the great capacities of human beings, that they can hold, you know, counterposing viewpoints in the same person. Maybe less so men, maybe women are more able to do this than we are. Uh, but we're complex, so... I I go I, I hold no uh, objective opinion uh, or of most things. I'll try pretty much everything. I'll try to enter visionary states and altered states in many ways, 
to see what's there, you know, what's in that territory. And then there's the territory of pure technology and science, and that's a mind state, right? That's an, that's a kind of an altered state. Uh, but I'll travel on this liminal ridge uh, between some more what you'd call magic or visionary states, and I'll cross back over the ridge to take things back into the mundane, if you'd call it, that's sort of a little bit casting aspersion, but the, the state where you're just connecting A to B to make C. Uh, but I can do that. I've, I've been able to do this since I was a little kid. Uh, when you're a little kid, you live in worlds of the imagination a lot of the time. You know, it just never turned off for me in my teen years. You know, maybe I wasn't, the hormones didn't quite kick in. I wasn't interested in girls or cars. I was drawing vast imaginary landscapes all through my teen years of worlds that I was seeing. And those worlds are where I go to to solve these hard problems in science or space and bring them back and make them real. Because in a way, if you only have the magic, if you're only, say, working as a spiritualist or an experientialist, you dig your own rabbit hole, right? You create a, a set of beliefs uh, that sound very compelling. They create great stories. But when you're gone, unless there are followers, uh, all of your rabbit hole products go away. And I have a book, uh, you've probably seen it, it's called, I think, The uh, Spiritual Geometric Kabbalistic Traditions of All Ages, written by Manly P. Hall in the 1920s. And it's a, it documents a thousand years of, of these different spiritual rabbit holes. And I noticed uh, the artwork for your podcast, which shows the fellow looking through the sphere of stars and seeing a different reality. That, that artwork is from one of those traditions. It's because it's in Manly P. Hall's book. And, and so, so if you're only on the spiritual side, you, you can completely fool yourself and go down these rabbit holes. If you're only on the materialist side, you can get completely caught up in detail and never solve big problems. I think you have to have both, and that any change maker in science or even in tech, like a Steve Jobs, has to have a mystical side uh, so that they're able to travel those other realms and they're able to be reached by the cosmos in some way with you know, like the design of the Macintosh or iPhone or, you know, or whatever it is. You have to have both if you're going to really make a serious contribution. Uh, of course, the, the, the pure materialists are making contributions all the time, and we have flying self-driving cars because of them. But you have to have both. You have to have objective thinking as well. And that's, that's one of the criticisms that the consciousness researcher might make of somebody like Deepak Chopra, who lacks a lot of discipline. He uses terms from quantum mechanics when he doesn't understand what they mean. So he's misusing, uh, he's abusing the language of science in order to, you know, sell books. And that's wrong. Uh, but he's been called out on this, at least. And he's made some public apologies. But uh, I, Deepak actually does need to go and take a course in quantum mechanics. I'm a spiritual person, but I've also been, or I'm also like 
try, I'm not a scientist, but I, I'm always trying to look at it from that perspective as well. But what I've discovered is, especially when I've been working with ayahuasca, is that if I turn on the scientific method during a ceremony and try to understand it and even like uh, look at it from that kind of perspective, I just get like completely uh, smashed up. In my, I mean, it doesn't, I, I, I have to not, I can't do that. I can't use that part of my brain in that experience because then I, I, it just becomes hell. I don't know why, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but you know, it, for me, it doesn't work in that moment. Maybe afterwards, but not during. You know, Jim Fadiman, uh, who I think has he been on your your show yet? I don't know who that is. He's a, a researcher from who worked in in the sixties uh, with creative, like scientists, engineers, etc., working with LSD mostly uh, to see if they could bring their their problems into that space and come up with solutions. And he's tracked that ever since. Um, Jim Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N, a wonderful fellow. But he he's tracked this for almost 50 years, uh, where people bring reductionist problems into the magic of, uh, mostly in that case, it was LSD and psilocybin to to get vision. Uh, and, and it has worked. You know, so it, I think it, it it all depends on in, intention. Like if you come into your ayahuasca experience in, in a loving way and offer a gift and say, I'm offering some of my best stuff to you, most beautiful stuff, which is my ideas about a technology or something and offer it up as a gift. It's It's not something like you're furling your brow and asking it to solve equations for you you know it's a playful thing and then the gift is received and graciously received and and toyed with and is it toyed with by an outside entity or is it toyed with by your subconscious or whatever you actually don't have to know the answer to those questions because it just it works and suddenly you're transformed into a, a new space and shown a, a landscape or colors or Dennis McKenna's magnificent story of being shown by the plant world how we feed you. You know, he went through photosynthesis. He became the photon and went down into the chloroplast. And he tells this so brilliantly and I'm. I'm not. I think it was to, he would took took ayahuasca and then was shown how the plant world feeds us, and then he was shown the state of the planet, and that shook him to his core, and it's led him to become an activist, Dennis McKenna. It could be that it doesn't work well for me because I'm not a trained scientist, and I don't have it in my in my spine. You know, all the all the knowledge required, maybe. So you know, I'm I'm just like. Uh hobby interest in science so so it could be that like a real scientist who does it for a living uh, could get more out of it perhaps you know maybe the ayahuasca was more concerned about healing me from other things so you know forget about that you got more important things to think about you know maybe uh, it could be that <laughs> i think i think it's a good point and that certainly ayahuasca number one always was about healing you know it was the surgeon of the amazon you know the psychic shared surgeon, but also the body, the body healer in the Amazon for thousands of years. And so 
if 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 you are doing if you've done your healing work, then I what I always think of it if you've really done the work you've done the work on the healing, then you have permission to entertain other things like visual effects uh, and, uh, and and things like ideas. Uh, I, I can share another story if you're interested on this, this liminal uh, boundary. Well, uh, one night, and this is years ago when I was going to Peru, uh, I decided I'd been doing fairly big healing work on myself uh, for actually several years. Uh, I was adopted at birth, and in order to heal the, the rupture or the wounding that occurs when a, a little baby in the womb is, is actually given up by the parents while they're still in the womb, they're, they've decided to give you up and the connection drops. So I used these journeys in Peru to to literally relive that uh, and relive my coming into the world and very, very traumatic, very painful and very beautiful uh, experience. Uh, and I've been doing this work and part of this work was basically saying to the entity or the field or whatever it is, I don't want distractions. I don't want visuals. You know, I don't want to see animals, plants, geometries, things like that. I have this work to do and that's the work that it's for. But one night, after many nights of our group saying, oh, we've been so entertained the previous night by kaleidoscopic visions and fantastical scenes, and here am I doing this very, very painful work. I one night said, I just want to be entertained, you know. And Terence McKenney used to describe this thing as, bring on the dancing mice, you know, bring on the dancing mice for the entertainment. So I said, you know, bring on the dancing mice. I don't care. I just light, not psycho-spiritual heaviness. And after three hours, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. And I thought, well, this is a bust. You know, I'm condemned to either do deep healing work or heavy-duty science, you know, but never entertained, you know, woe is me. And so I, I picked up my flashlight to go out and take a pee because it was a new moon. It was I was going to wear bare feet when I'm there so I can feel the earth. Uh, and I go out the front of the, the little round building we're in. I click on my flashlight and I look down and in what, what's nominally a muddy surface, there are these jewels. There are these hexagonal jeweled patterns everywhere, perfectly interlinked. It's spectacular, the, the, the ground, the muddy earth beneath my feet. And I move my flashlight around and the, you know, ob obsidian and emerald uh, jewels with facets do all the math. They do the physics and the light's reflecting just perfectly. You know, thank you very much. So I walk across the jeweled plain toward where there's a big bank of dried leaves. And I look at them and they're covered with glyphs with these magical characters. And it's fantastic, and I say, how could this all this beauty come to be? And then another leaf comes down from a tree, 
and it's wafted, and I can see individual molecules, atmospheric molecules, placing it in exactly the right place to, to, to speak something. And that, that's how it comes to be. And then I stood at the, the bank of leaves and said, I wonder what happens if I shift my consciousness now into a more analytical state, you know, the mechanistic reductionist state. of, And I did it. So I st stood there and I shifted into, oh, but this is just a bank of dead leaves. And the magical treatment went away. Nothing moved, but suddenly it wasn't there. The, the overlay of these characters and just the magic of the ground. And then I said to myself, let's shift back. Let's go back. And I shifted across and then it all came back. Same scene, same objects. Then I walked up to where I, you know, we have the little outdoor porta potty. And I reached a point where, shining the light, there was the most spectacular crystal. This, this translucent crystal I'd ever seen with pure blue and pure white and pure, uh, pure red. It was unbelievably beautiful. I didn't know what it was. But then I realized I'm not here. I'm walking two feet above the ground like an airplane. I need to push my my chest and my face and my very lips into the into the ground to be present because humans are not present by virtue of being bipeds in a lot of ways. So I did that and the smells and the whole jungle just enveloped me. Uh, I could feel then part of it, part of this magic, this crystalline magic of these trees is just unbelievable. So I, I continued on up and I did my duty. And then when I came back down, I was shifting back across the liminal ridge again, back toward the mundane. And I shone the light at that spot where that crystal was seen. And it was a toilet uh, paper wrapper that was that was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen. And it was just uh, plastic uh, with blue and blue and red. And even though it was trash, it was also spectacularly beautiful and the outside in this state. So that was my story of finding this ridge between these two worlds and going back and forth. Go to damer.com if you want to check out his work. Now let's end part one of my talk with Dr. Bruce Damer with a song by Sam Quick called Start the Day from the album The Way Forward. Go to samquick.bandcamp.com if you like what you hear. And if you want to support the podcast, give it a nice review on iTunes. And if you have something you ponder about, drop me a line and I might bring up the topic in a future episode. All the links and contact forms can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. So uh, this uh, episode will be continued in the next episode. Till then, you only need to remember one thing. Freedom is in the mind. Thank
Thank you.